This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. We hear a lot about two Americas. Usually it's divided down the lines of the political parties, blue America, red America. Sometimes it's in terms of economics or education. There's no doubt that there's great division in American society right now. What role has the media played in contributing to that division? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. We keep talking and hearing about the two Americas. Is that getting worse with this lingering COVID threat? Well, COVID is certainly a huge symptom. I, I know through the entire COVID situation, I have thought over and over, if our distrust of the mainstream press, which which boils down to something that you and I have been talking about now for five or more years, which is kind of the death of the American model of the press, the death of the old press model that you tried to be fair and accurate when covering people on both sides of a debate, and instead of thinking that you had an automatic template, that there were good guys and bad guys. I figured if if we couldn't have the public trust the media on COVID, if fighting a pandemic was going to break us down into the same normal camps, which the media will tend to define politically, but as always, with cultural issues, there are other things about it that involve religion, that involve you know academia, and all the other factors. I think we've seen COVID kind of being in some ways the last straw. And beyond that, the last straw for me is the increasing sign that half of America is beginning to get fed up with the world of business, and corporation, and all of this is symbolized by the power of big tech in our lives and in our attempts to discuss any of these things. And COVID is just a a really sad, pathetic, painful case study. And I can't believe that the COVID coverage and the lack of trust in the coverage, I can't believe it's degenerated as far as it has. So, That raises kind of an interesting question about how the media requires trust to carry out its, let's just call it broader civic function. We often talk about the fourth estate. And I don't know if anybody would be willing to talk about the fourth estate in its classical sense anymore, not even journalists. How big a story in itself is the plummeting trust in in media? (laughs) I didn't think it could go any lower. But I hate to always say, as you and I have discussed, the simple fact of the matter is that these things are linked. And there are links to things we've talked about in the past. You're right when you talk about the civil role of the media as the fourth estate, as a kind of public utility of information. But that's rooted in the assumption that the American model of the press is economically viable. What's happened now 
it's become pretty clear that the Internet, with its digital media, with its amazing ability to divide us into concrete silos where we, we only have to listen to people who already agree with us and to the media that tell us we're right, what's really tragic is that that's the business model right now that works. I mean, you can't run a newspaper now and attempt to push advertisements to both sides of the American divide. It makes more sense right now with digital advertising dollars plummeting the way they have in recent years. It's clear that digital advertising just doesn't work the way it used to. It works for small niche audiences, but it doesn't work for grocery stores and department stores and automobile companies anymore. We're all going into niches. So when that happens, you have to be able, just like we talked about last week, you have to be able to put stories on your site that will make your true believers click and click and click until finally they subscribe. And right now the most successful publications in the traditional news business are those that have loyal readers willing to pay money to subscribe. But what we're seeing is that that's a very divided audience and that you don't have subscribers from both halves of America subscribing to the same publications anymore. I mean, could you believe the role that the two America world played in the ratings for the Olympics? I mean, it's, it's very clear that that was a, a huge story this time around. It's affected the coverage of the NFL, you know, with things, everything involving prayer all the way to the national anthem. Uh, in fact, to some degree, we can pit these things together, but two of the things that scared me the most, just if you look at the structures of our media, and then I want to get to a remarkable Twitter thread that ran the other day that tried to sum all this up into one big symphony of pain. The parlor case, parlay case, about it, was it about a year ago? Yeah. When you had this attempt, we're constantly hearing, well, conservatives and all of you people in red American heartland, start your own media, compete with us. Well, so we had this kind of competition with Twitter slash Facebook spring up, and it started to make some noise. And then all of a sudden, what happened? It got taken off. Basically, it was canceled by big tech. And suddenly it became apparent that not only could they prevent your app from getting into certain places that are really important, like the Apple App Store, but all of a sudden they could take away your servers. They could actually take away your access to the technology you needed to build a platform for the other side. And so all of a sudden you couldn't even say, do what Rush Limbaugh did with talk radio, which was proved that the other half of America, or at least part of the other half of America, was economically viable for its own media institutions. So you have that on one side, you had the parlay case. The other thing, when I think of things that unite America, more than news, I think about entertainment. Entertainment is really where the big numbers are. But even with, with COVID now and whatever, now we're dividing more and more into separate little 
universes of streaming services. And at the heart of all this, the, the big symbol to me is the astonishing decay of Hollywood's power, as demonstrated by the ratings for the Academy Awards, and the fact that you see who Hollywood nominates for the Academy Awards. I mean, this may be the first year that I hadn't seen a single picture nominated for one of the big Academy Awards, and that wasn't just because of COVID. In some cases, I hadn't heard of some of those films. And I'm a guy that takes the content of entertainment culture pretty seriously. We really are technologically dividing into two countries, and the two don't trust each other one bit. So what can we learn? You mentioned this Twitter thread by Constantin Kissin. Yeah. Uh, what can we learn about his litany of... I will put it this way, things that the media said would happen that didn't or said that couldn't happen that did, and how this gets the average media consumer's head spinning. Yeah, I thought it was a brilliant summary of a lot of ideas, and you didn't have to agree with him or kind of agree with the implications of some of his political statements to say that he really did create a remarkable litany of things the public was told by the press, the following is going to happen, and then it didn't. Or, the following happened, and we're telling you what it means, yet everything you're seeing on the TV screen is undercutting what we're saying. And the, the ultimate example of that is the mostly peaceful demonstrations mantra with the reporter standing in front of the burning cities. That kind of became the case study for that. But for me, the moment that in terms of religion and how religion fits into all of this, the most poignant example of it all was the Covington Catholic High School students and how that story unfolded and how coverage of that story unfolded and then how the, the media lost interest in that story the minute it no longer fit their template. I mean, the fact that when some of the demonstrators who clashed with the Covington High students when it became apparent that they actually attempted to invade a mass at the largest cathedral, the most symbolic cathedral in Washington, D.C., that story didn't get any play at all. This whole story with the media is just as much about what isn't covered as well as what is. And I loved the fact that he started not with Trump, because all of this is way earlier than Trump. I like the fact that he started with Brexit. And he started with a larger picture that this is not just America, this is global. I mean, and that Brexit can't possibly pass because the people in our newsroom don't know a single British person who's going to vote for it. And then it passes. Then here in America, you're going into election night 2016. There is absolutely zero chance that Donald Trump can be elected. We don't know anyone who's going to vote for him. This thing is a done deal. Nothing, yet nothing can break our view of this mold. And then Trump is elected, which brings us to those remarkable columns in the New York Times by the, the reader's representative, Liz Spayed, who is a New York liberal, I mean, a tenured faculty member at Columbia Journalism School, 
former editor of the Columbia Journalism Review, you don't get better liberal credentials. And she wrote a series of columns which basically said, it's time for the New York Times to ask, do we want to cover all of America or only half of it? Are we going to admit that the other half of America exists and that we're not listening to it and we don't know how to cover it, that religion was a part of that scenario, which is why we wrote about it at Get Religion all the time. So right in the middle of that, when she's really beginning to get rolling, the New York Times fires her. And in effect, they fire her for seeing the fact that America has divided in half and that the Times isn't interested in the other half of America. Really, really poignant stuff. Terry, is part of the reason for the distrust of the media, the fact that reporters now have social media platforms where they publicly offer their personal opinions on news stories? That certainly is a part of how I perceive the problem. And this has been going on for some time. And at first, and in some cases, newsroom managers have kind of swung back against that. But more and more, it became apparent that your, the big word is brand, your online brand was really, really important, especially with Twitter. And once again, we can't, we cannot oversell the degree to which the power of Twitter in blue America and in that half of America is so stunningly important in terms of how it drives news coverage and how it convinces many people in elite newsrooms on the two coastlines, convinces them what is news and what isn't news. I mentioned the Covington High School story. That was a story that was completely defined by the early tweets and by what people thought happened there. And that template got created. And it took days for any information to sink in that undercut that to any degree. And ironically, the information came from smartphones, from actual videos and stuff like that. And at some point, very reluctantly, the Twitterazzi kind of had to admit what was said and what happened and what didn't happen. And they, they struggled against it. But that was, to me, the symbolic one, especially out of this Twitter storm that we're talking about. So, yes, you're on to something there, and we recently had a tweet that kind of, among at least the people, I, the journalists that I talked to, that kind of stirred up some more discussion of this. Kelly McBride, who is best known for her work at Pointer, but before as an ethics leader at Pointer, and now she's the National Public Radio public editor and senior vice president at Pointer and a lot of other things. Long ago, I knew her when she was an up-and-rising religion writer. She was a professional on the religion beat. And she noted in a piece, the tweet that went out that fired everybody up was, NPR ethics policy update. Journalists can now participate in activities that advocate for freedom and the dignity of human beings on social media and in real life. And then in her actual piece about this, she noted that the new NPR policy reads, NPR editorial staff may express support, 
meaning social media and everything, for democratic civic values that are core to NPR's work, such as, but not limited to, the freedom and dignity of human beings, the rights of a free and independent press, the right to thrive society without facing discrimination on the basis of race, ethnicity, gender, sexual identity, disability, or religion. Then she went on and said, is it okay to march in a demonstration that says Black Lives Matter? What about a pride parade? In theory, the answer today is yes. But in practice, NPR journalists will have to discuss specific decisions with their bosses, who in turn will have to ask a lot of questions. I think back to you know my own career when it was a very big deal in the 80s when I was at the Rocky Mountain News, whether or not you took part in demonstrations or things, especially that were related to your beat. There was a famous clash, at least among my friends and with me and others in the newsroom, when there were some women in the newsroom who tried to have me removed from the religion beat because they knew that I was a pro-life Democrat. And they thought that I should not be allowed to cover a huge abortion story that was coming up. And I wrote back to the editors and said, I perfectly am willing to discuss this as long as we discuss how these women have interacted with the same subject material, in some cases involving their work. I knew that, in fact, one or two of them, one in particular, had been very active in abortion rights situations, whereas I had never donated a dollar never licked a stamp and had never put a foot down in a march, let alone help plan one. And at that point in my life, I was an Episcopalian, not Orthodox. I mean, I was a member of a church that was very strongly pro-abortion rights. This has been around for decades. But once again, the power of social media and how it defines what is a story and what isn't a story, it's, it's only growing in importance. I want you to contrast the kind of there's NPR's admission that, yes, our reporters have opinions and within a certain boundary, we're going to let them express those opinions as private citizens. And then there is the almost abject unwillingness in general of kind of the big players in media mm-hmm. to say we are not objective with very few exceptions. We are not objective. They won't put it that way. But we are here in part to give you our opinions on what's happening in the news. In other words, we have embraced the approach, the philosophy, and the economics of the European model of the press, where you openly court readers, subscribers, and even advertisers. It's a big deal in in increasingly woke technology in corporate America. We're going to practice at every level the European model of the press but we're not going to admit that that's what we're doing. Is that essentially what you're asking? Well, yes. I mean, some would put it more harshly. They would say it's not the European model of the press. I think about Molly Hemingway. She says most of the media is propaganda. Just regard it that way and live with it. Well, Molly and I would have to talk about that, and I'm sure that would be an interesting discussion. I would say that from their perspective, it's not propaganda at all. They're absolutely convinced that they know the facts on these stories And to give you the facts, they don't need to include the views of people in the heartland, other than perhaps academics who fit their point of view, and that they don't have to, in the words of Liz Spayed, they don't have to wake up to the fact that they're not covering half of America. 
And if you don't cover half of America, you're going to consistently be surprised by what direction news stories take. Frankly, you're not going to do a good job of covering the conflicts if you're not even willing to listen to the most intelligent and trustworthy voices on the other side of the issue. When I was teaching journalism in Washington, D.C., there was something I used to teach my students. And be prepared to laugh out loud at this when I tell you what I used to advise my students because it, it sounds so strange in this context. I used to do a panel where I brought in a spokesperson from a conservative organization and a spokesperson from a liberal organization that directly competed with each other, both of them former journalists in Washington, D.C., both of them national-level journalists, and I asked them to give some advice to my students on how to cover both of their organizations. And one day at the end, one of them gave some advice that I handed on for years and years after that. And that was when you get to the end of an interview with someone, let's say someone who is the, uh, to name an organization that was involved in the discussion, someone who worked at the Family Research Council, the press aid, and you're interviewing someone there or you're interviewing one of their vice presidents. At the end of the interview, ask them this question, who on the other side of these debates, who in the organizations you compete with, who do you respect? Who are the people, if you're a, a pro-life group, who are the people in the world of abortion rights, who do you respect on that side of the issue? Whose voices do you think the media should trust and even seek out if they're going to understand the actual debates? On church-state cases, when something's coming up at the Supreme Court, like this very important case on abortion that Richard Osling has written about at Get Religion, who are the lawyers on the other side that you think need to be in your story to do the best job of representing the information and beliefs of the people on the other side? Now, can you even imagine thinking that now? Finally, here with only a minute, <laughs> can American journalism be reformed in a thus-divided America? At the moment, I'm going to say that I don't see how the American model can be profitable at the national level right now. I'm even more concerned about whether or not it can be profitable at local levels. And as far as away as 20 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, I was having my students read articles that the real crisis is going to be local coverage and state government coverage. Here in the state of Tennessee, we actually had a case where we were talking about one of the, uh, the bathroom bills involving gender identity and stuff. And the newspaper, the main newspaper covering the story, didn't want to admit that their corporation was involved in the lobby group, funding the lobby group, cooperating with the lobby group that was on the left side of the issue and representing the industries that were fighting the passage of this bill. That violates so many basics of journalism. But in the new age of technology and economics of the Internet, that's going to happen more and more, and we're going to get more and more divided. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. 
He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thanks. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.